In a world that values productivity and achievement, how can young people discover their God-given identity? Nathan Stuckey serves as director of the Farminary Project at Princeton Theological Seminary, where his work integrates theological education with small-scale, sustainable agriculture at Princeton Seminary's 21-acre farm. An ordained Mennonite, Nate has a special interest in the role of community formation and Sabbath in the educational life of the church. In this interview, we talk about his research on Sabbath and young people, which was recently published in the book Wrestling with Rest, Inviting Youth to Discover the Gift of Sabbath. Nate discusses how, through the gift of Sabbath, God invites young people into an identity that is rooted not in personal achievement, but in the grace of life, and provision of God. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Nate, thank you for sitting down and talking with me today. Of course. I'm glad you're here. Glad to do it. It's kind of fun to get to talk to one of my colleagues <laughs> for The Distillery. I'm wondering if um, we're here to talk about uh, your new book, Wrestling with Rest, and I'm wondering if you would start by telling a story that I know you used to use when you would teach. One of my first memories of you being here as a student is walking into the continuing education offices with a box full of lots of rubber duckies. Yeah. So can you explain the rubber duckies? That would be a great way to get started. Of course. So Kenda tells this story uh, in the forward to the book about me showing up to teach about the Sabbath with my box of rubber duckies, as you just mentioned. And uh, the rubber duckies are a fun teaching tool, and they help me tell through at least three stories. One of them is that wonderful but underutilized theological resource uh, that we call Sesame Street. Uh, there's this skit that I love from Sesame Street where Ernie wants to learn how to play the saxophone, but he is having trouble. He goes to Hoots the Owl, the band leader, and says, hey, I want to learn how to play the saxophone. Hoots wants to teach him this, but the struggle is every time Ernie plays the saxophone, he gets this squeak, and it's because he won't put down the duck while he's trying to play the saxophone. And then the refrain from this song is, you got to put down the ducky if you want to play the saxophone. And at some level, there's this question, if, if playing the saxophone is like receiving the Sabbath, there's this question of, is it a good thing in the first place? And if it is, we might have to put down other good things in order to receive it. Ernie loves his duck, but he needs to put it down if he's going to receive this other good thing. And there's this lovely part uh, in the end of that skit, or in the midst of it, where Hoots the Owl tells Ernie, look, you put it down, and then when you're done, you can pick it back up. You just need to put it down now if you're going to play the saxophone. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's analogs there for for the Sabbath, if it is this good thing, if it is a gift, if it's something we actually want to receive, what are we willing to put down in order to receive it? Mm -hmm. And it also points to the fact that it's not always easy to put down the ducks. Yeah. And then two other stories that it helps tell, and we can get into this yeah, later, go. but there are connections uh, with, I think, how the Sabbath unfolds in Scripture with the Pharisees and with the Israelites and our temptation to either want to reduce the Sabbath to just keeping our ducks in a row mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. 24 hours, or we need to get our ducks in a row and then we can practice Sabbath. There's a whole question about yeah. how we conceive of Sabbath and keeping our ducks in a row or not. Because we have to make sure we do it right. That's right. Yeah. Do, do we have to do it right or do we have to get enough work done and then we can 
receive the Sabbath. Yeah, it's the prize you get if you get your work done. Yeah, yeah, this is what we're up against. Yeah, it is. So talking about Sabbath, we automatically fall into also talking about work. And when a person meets you, Nate, it doesn't take long to to discover in conversation your Mennonite roots, which you have great affection for. And so it's fitting that that makes its way into your book and in your discussion of Sabbath and young people. Would you talk a little bit about that faith community and how it has shaped your understanding of work and rest? Yeah. So I can't get out of the introduction of the book without already mentioning mm-hmm. these Mennonite roots. And I tell a story there about being a 16-year-old young person and taking a summer service trip to Appalachia and working on homes in disrepair there for a week and learned a story after the fact that the directors of this ministry had this decision to make kind of midweek because our appetites were throwing off their food budget. We were eating more food than any other group they'd ever seen. But then we found out later that the director of the ministry told the people in the kitchen, look, just feed them as much as they want because they're getting more work done than any other group I've ever Mm -hmm. seen. And this was kind of this defining story and and this kind of powerful affirmation of our identity as these hardworking farm kids from Kansas. Mm-hmm. And, and I have loved that story. I still love that story, but I also recognize that it points to a overlap in identity and work in a way mm-hmm. that, that if, if all you're known for is your hard work, then there's not a lot of room for failure and there's not a lot of room for grace Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of room for rest. Mm-hmm. So how do we tell stories that make room for rest? And how do I wrestle with my own identity as a Mennonite and and kind of a celebration of the work ethic that does come with that, mm-hmm. but not reducing that identity to merely work? There's got to be yeah. more than that. Yeah. And, and work isn't a bad thing, but right. this cycle of work affirmation repeat yeah over and over and over again yeah. becomes problematic when we when we hear the word sabbath it brings ideas people have ideas about what that is either things they've read about or conclusions they've drawn themselves and you point to some typical words associated with sabbath which are things like rest delight pleasure recreation rejuvenation but you suggest that sabbath is more complicated and maybe less pleasant then those words make it sound. What's going on there with what you're trying to do there? Just to keep going in threes, Mm -hmm. Barbara Brown Taylor, Mm -hmm. my own experience, and Mm -hmm. paying attention to the experiences of young people. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor has this great little video where she's talking about the Sabbath, and she talks about, you know, people flock to the Sabbath because of the hammock part, the rejuvenation part, mm-hmm. the rest part. But there's like a yin and a yang to Sabbath. There is that sort of rest and rejuvenation part, but there's also the the way that Sabbath disorients. Um, mm-hmm. She goes as far as calling Sabbath a little death. On the Sabbath, productivity dies. And then yeah. who are we? So that's one piece that complicates a Sabbath story that gets reduced to... A, a, a nice nap on, mm-hmm. on Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. 
And then my own story is critical to this. I tell the story in, in the first chapter of the book about me being in the, in the doctoral program, and I've already kind of identified Sabbath as a research interest, and I need to do finals that first semester and have the closest thing I've ever had to a mental breakdown. And, and literally, I can't rest. One of the sort of symptoms of that was this form of insomnia that was, was terrifying. Yeah. And so how do I make sense of like being the quote unquote burgeoning Sabbath expert and not being able to rest. There's something complicated and difficult about that. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least is the research that I did with young people uh, for this project, Um, listening to, it ended up being 39 seniors in high school and paying attention to how they understand and experience rest and listening to them define rest uh, overwhelmingly with reference to stress and anxiety and worry. So if something's going to qualify as rest, it has to, to reduce stress. It has to reduce anxiety. I think that makes sense. Not a big surprise there. The, the more disconcerting part of what they offered upon further reflection was they confessed that rest creates its own anxiety. So you can yeah. you can long for rest. You can sense that there's something there that you're missing. But then when you actually try to go to rest, you're kind of bombarded with the tasks that aren't getting done, the productivity that's not have happening, the achievements that aren't going on your resume. And so what do you do when you long for rest, but then rest creates its own anxiety? So all of that, you know, complicates this yeah simple story of Sabbath that is like, you know, a cool mountain breeze and a hammock between the trees and a cool drink in my hand. So the book itself is really focusing on an invitation to young people to to discover Sabbath. But there's an assumption that the person reading the book is not necessarily the young person themselves. Um, It's... um, in some ways, written for those of us who work with young people, whether we be parents or youth leaders or pastors or whatever. Although I may put the book in the hands of my own young people and my family anyways. <laughs> but you begin by talking about our own Sabbath practices, right. the practices of adults. Why do you start there? There's something going on here that for me echoes some of the work that Kenda Dean did with National Study of Youth and Religion. Mm-hmm. And she posits in almost Christian, that the the challenge we're up against with young people isn't that they have misunderstood our theology and our understanding of church. They actually heard it loud and clear, and they're just doing what we've taught them. Mm-hmm. I think there's something very much analogous to that happening with work and rest and Sabbath with young people. Our young people are anxious uh, for rest and anxious at rest because they've been learning from us Mm -hmm. too often. And so, you know, again, the research with the young people revealed that families of origin were were without a doubt the primary starting place for where young people would go to try to expound on how they understand and experience rest uh, or how they understand and experience Sabbath if they use that language. So the short answer is I don't think we can talk about young people and Sabbath unless we're also willing to stand in front of the mirror and look at ourselves and recognize what are our understandings and experiences of yeah. rest. Do we have them or and or to what extent are we experiencing that same kind of tension? So 
I mean, why this book? Why do young people need rest? How much difference does something like sleep actually make in the life of a young person? Those are really two questions, like why rest and what does sleep have to do with it and all the other unpacking of young people's yeah. busy lives. Right, right. So on, I mean, this the sleep science to me is, is endlessly fascinating, and we don't need to go into the weeds on that too far. Mm-hmm. But one really interesting research project that was done involved this um, sleep scientist who worked with sort of early adolescents and strategically deprived them of an hour of sleep for or, across the span of something like seven days. Mm-hmm. And with just losing an hour of sleep for a few days, they measured their brain function. And after losing that sleep, they had lost two years of cognitive function. So if they were working with sixth graders, they yeah. were they lose just that hour of sleep for a few days in a row. And all of a sudden, their brains are functioning like fourth graders. So there's, there's a neurological thing going on there. Mm-hmm. But the sleep and the rest also connect with, you know, mental health and emotional stability. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it impacts memory and all kinds of things. But, but at a, you know, all of that is critically important. In addition to that, I think the church has to ask the theological question, and that is why might rest or sleep be important for the theological formation mm-hmm. of young people? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the, the bottom line there for me is I'm not sure we can have a really robust understanding of God's grace apart from a robust understanding of Sabbath rest. Okay. And so that that gets to the theology that starts pointing mm-hmm. to the theology and yeah. and what's going on there yeah. and how we understand Sabbath in the first place. Is it about getting those ducks in a row? Mm-hmm. Or is it about something else? And yeah. I obviously think it's about something yeah. else. So when you get into the theological conversation in the book about Sabbath, you've chosen Karl Barth as a dialogue partner. I mean, why Barth? And what does he have to say that's helpful? Well, I just assume that Karl Barth is on every faithful Christian's coffee table. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's just, you know, picking yeah. up a conversation that's already going that's on. That's right. No, I, th- the bottom line is I, I think what Karl Barth writes about the Sabbath is really compelling mm-hmm. and, and it's beautiful. And, and it, it, it challenges in ways that are really fruitful. And I think he recognizes the anxiety that I perceived and that the young people mm-hmm. showed me, the, the, that anxiety in, my, in myself and also in young people. But the beauty of what he does has to do with, he's, he has this whole section in his Doctrine of Creation where he interprets each of the seven days of creation. Mm-hmm. And so he has a whole section of that devoted to his interpretation of the seventh day. Mm-hmm. And one of the many things he lifts up is that that seventh day of creation is humankind's first full day of existence. They're created mm-hmm. on the sixth day. It appears that God's giving them something like a job description, be fruitful, multiply, yeah. have dominion. And so if you just kind of follow the contours, the momentum of the story, it seems like day seven would start up and then the humans would get to work. Yeah. But that's not how the story goes. Instead, day seven is this day of Sabbath rest for God and mm-hmm. by implication, the whole creation. So at that point, there is Sabbath rest given to the whole creation, including humanity. 
And there's no way at that point in the story that the humans can think they earned it. Uh, exactly. At that point, it's it's a gift of sheer grace. And so then Bart has this kind of statement thoroughly embodying the Reformed tradition. And he says, there at the dawn of creation, grace precedes the law, which to me is just yeah. a, a beautiful observation from not a complicated reading of the text, but mm-hmm. just sort of taking the text at face value. So, yeah, I, at, at the end of the day, I think Bart says beautiful things about the Sabbath. So kind of continuing with that, what does the Sabbath tell us about God? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it tells us that God rests. And Mm -hmm. I think in the midst of a society and a culture and oftentimes a church that doesn't rest, Mm -hmm. we need to wrestle with this reality that we still say we worship this God. Mm -hmm. And it's not just any God. It's a God who at the dawn of creation stops puts down the work and rests. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, that must mean something. There must be a reason that we have professed to, to, to follow this God. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there are, are a couple of other dimensions that Bart lifts up about what the Sabbath reveals about who God is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is divine freedom. Okay. And so, so Bart says, look, the the story could have gone a lot of different ways. It could have gone that, you know, God creates on day one, two, three, four, five, six. God could have just kept creating Mm -hmm. day seven, day eight, day nine, creating, 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 creating. But if God had done that, God wouldn't be free. God Mm -hmm. would actually be held captive by that creative activity. So in order for God to be free relative to God's work, God actually had to put the work down. And then Mm -hmm. when God does that, God demonstrates God's uh, own freedom. Uh, he has this line, he says, a being is free only when it can determine and limit its own activity. Okay. A being is free only when it can determine and limit its own activity. I think there's something compelling and profound about that. And when we put that in reference to our own lives, do we know how to limit our own activity? I, I don't know, but I do think we can feel that sense of the loss of freedom when we don't know how to limit our activity. Yeah. So so the Sabbath reveals God's freedom. And then the second thing that the Sabbath reveals is God's love. God isn't a God who has no time for creation, mm-hmm. but instead God stops the work. Mm-hmm. Why? Because God has now the object of God's love and it is the creation. And so God spends time with creation. God loves creation, chooses to be in relationship with creation be with and for creation is Bart's mm-hmm. kind of classic language. So to reveal God's freedom, to reveal God's love, to reveal grace that precedes the law, sounds like a God worth following. It does. So why should we observe the Sabbath? My first response and my response with greatest conviction is that I am just not sure we can know who we are. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we can know who God is. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we can have a, a robust understanding of creation apart from the Sabbath. Okay. The risk is if we just define ourselves by our endless activity, mm-hmm. then we never recognize that there's more to us and there's more to God. And we're just endless achievers or ceaseless mm-hmm. consumers or 
those who just produce and produce and produce. And I think there can be a moment of, of real struggle and, and almost can be almost incapacitating to think that, that we are only what we can achieve because then, then what happens if we're on a different spectrum of ability or capacity or whatever, does that make us less human? And so to recognize God's affirmation of our full humanity prior to any work or achievement on our part Mm -hmm. tells us something really important about who we are. And if you're a parent and you've held your child in your arms, there's no questioning the full humanity mm-hmm. of that child. They have, they've only been dependent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet they're fully human. Yeah. For those in youth ministry working with young people, the, the care that we extend should never be tied to what a young person can or cannot do, mm-hmm. but just because we recognize that they are beloved children of God. And at the end of the day, I think that's what it's about. Do we recognize through this that we are God's beloved children. It's mm-hmm. not something we earned. It's just a gift, and it's a gift that changes everything. What are some of the central biblical texts or narratives that contribute to your understanding of the Sabbath? You know, for the Israelites, there's this core story of their kind of movement by the end of the book of Genesis. They're in Egypt with the whole Joseph and mm-hmm. and Jacob and the brothers drama. And then you get to Exodus and, and it starts off with a statement of Israel's there and Israel's children and they're very fruitful. And then a new king comes to power who doesn't remember Joseph. And then things go very poorly mm-hmm. for the Israelites. They're enslaved mm-hmm. for generations. Eventually Moses comes to the scene And through all these plagues, eventually the Israelites find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea in the wilderness. The food runs out. Mm -hmm. They complain, in my opinion, because they should have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The food runs out. What are they going to do? And God responds uh, by providing manna and Sabbath all in one. Yeah. And it's easy to belittle the Israelites and think, I mean, come on, people. It's really simple instruction. Why can't we just follow instructions? You go mm-hmm. out and you gather enough for one day. On the first five days, on the sixth day, you gather a double portion. On the seventh day, stay home. Yeah. Eat, eat what you already have. It's not complicated. Yeah, this is not complicated. But I just think that's a really, it's a tired interpretation. And I don't think it's fair to the broader story. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that God responds to their request for food by giving them work go out and gather manna and but also doing that in a way that I think fits with where they have been it's familiar language God says go gather one omer per person mm-hmm. in essence God gives them a quota mm-hmm. I think quotas would have been very familiar language yes uh, you know in light of the brick production to brick days. makers yeah. yeah so do one quota but it's like this kind of tiny quota mm-hmm. um, and there's this mysterious Thing where the text says those who gathered much and those who gathered little, when they put it on the scales, it was it was still one omer. Yeah. I'm not sure. There's a lot that could be read into that. But at any rate, they, they get the, the manna and the Sabbath all in one. And, and I think we have this 
simple question to ask, which is why would God do that? It would have been even simpler if God had just said, look, there's manna on the ground every morning at seven. Help yourself. Yeah. But that's not what God does. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's manna in Sabbath. And I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's what's required of an Israelite to go gather enough for one day Mm -hmm. and then eat it all when there's no more food around. And then start over the next day and to follow these instructions. And I think that one of the things that is required is this radical trust in God as the giver of daily bread. That it's going to be there the next day. That it's going to be there the next day. And that when you do that double portion on day six, that half of it isn't going to go bad on Mm -hmm. day seven. And that you can start over on day eight. And so I think part of what's going on is a slow kind of generation-long or generations-long reformation of the identity of the Israelite people. They show up in Egypt as welcome guests. They end up as people who are held captive. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. When they arrive in the wilderness, their inherited identity is still captive. Mm-hmm. They're, they're producers. That's, you know, the, the worth of an Israelite in Egypt is a very simple equation. You are worth as many bricks as you can produce. And I think part of what's going on with manna and Sabbath in the wilderness is God is saying, in essence, that'll never do for my Mm -hmm. people. You will be known by something else. You will be known by your trust in my provision and by your balance and your rhythm of work and rest. So that's one story. And then I mentioned earlier the Israelites and the Pharisees Mm -hmm. as being Mm -hmm. important characters in this whole broader Sabbath journey. I don't think their mistake is taking Sabbath too seriously. I think their mistake is missing the point and Mm -hmm. and in basically reducing Sabbath to merely a matter of what humans can or can't do Mm -hmm. and not recognizing Sabbath as a way of encountering the life of God and what God is doing Mm -hmm. and has done and Mm -hmm. will do. So We also have an inclination to want to look to Jesus to see how he understood the Sabbath, but it's not exactly an easy question to answer, is it? Right. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah. So this was important to me for my Mennonite Anabaptist identity, Mm -hmm. also with a nod to Karl Barth, who was so persistently Christocentric, as, as they say. And, and so, you know, I, I take a chapter of the book to basically ask this question, what about Jesus and Sabbath? Mm-hmm. And there has been a strain of interpretation that has basically said, you know, when Jesus showed up, we entered this new era. And after Jesus, Sabbath is kind of this optional thing. It's an old commandment we don't have to follow yeah, anymore or something. Yeah, although, I mean, we don't say yeah. that about no. murder and adultery, but, exactly. you know, whatever. I know, exactly. Uh, so so I, I, you know, spend a chapter looking specifically at the four Gospels and, and looking at all the texts where we find Jesus and Sabbath and and trying to hold that up next to what we see in the Old Testament through Genesis, through mm-hmm. the Exodus story, through the Sabbath commandments. And, and I think some remarkable themes show up when you look at Jesus and Sabbath. And one among many is that over and over and over again, we find Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And I think that matters. Uh, I, and I and I think it's it's this notion of Sabbath connecting with healing to me echoes that Israelite story. I think the Israelites show up in the wilderness and 
and there is a brokenness there. There's a displacement, a dis-ease. Mm-hmm. And, and the Sabbath is brought there to help put them back together, to help make them whole again. And, and Jesus is about that kind of work mm-hmm. on the Sabbath, about recognizing people in their brokenness, in their infirmity, mm-hmm. and, and initiating healing. There's, there's what's one of the stunning parts about the Sabbath stories in the Gospels is that when Jesus heals, Jesus is almost always the one who initiates the healing. It's never the one who is infirm or sick that asks to be healed. Jesus perceives these people, sees okay. them, reaches out, and and heals. So among many other themes I see throughout the Gospels and these stories of Jesus and Sabbath, that maybe Sabbath is about healing also. So as Christian people who want to participate in the life of God, how do we practice Sabbath? What do we do? We live in a world that still values work. Um, we've got that tension. So, you know, to go back to the, the start, you know, how, do, how do we put down the ducky? Yeah. Um, what are some ways that people can do that? Yeah. I do think, the again, the Israelites and the Pharisees can offer some guidance. When mm-hmm. I look at the Israelites, the thing that they are commanded to not do on the Sabbath is to go out and gather manna. I think they could have made a pretty strong argument for manna gathering being absolutely critical to their livelihood. Their lives depend on mm-hmm. that manna gathering, and God asks them to not do the thing that it appears their lives depend on. Yeah. With the Pharisees, there is... For them, this sense that their lives absolutely depend on their willingness and their ability to keep the law. And I think looking at the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees on the Sabbath, I think Jesus is pushing back on them saying, hey, put down the legalism, put down that thing that you think your life depends on so that you can receive true Sabbath rest and grace. So for me, that's always a starting point with Mm -hmm. the what do we do question. Mm -hmm. And it's simply, what are the things in our lives, oftentimes what are the good things in our lives that tempt us to believe that our lives depend on them, but that God is asking us to put down Mm -hmm. for a moment, for an hour, Mm -hmm. for a day, so that we can receive the good thing that is Sabbath rest. It's, I mean, it is the ducky and the saxophone. It's put Mm -hmm. down... The beloved ducky, mm-hmm. not because you don't love it. In some sense, like that's the ultimate act of love is being yeah. willing to let it go for a moment, receive this other good thing, and then you can go, then you can pick that other thing up, but actually have, in some sense, a renewed relationship with the duck mm-hmm. because there's mm-hmm. some differentiation there. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's about putting down the stuff that tempts us to believe that our lives depend on it, putting down the stuff that tempts us to trust it more than we should. Thanks, Nate. My privilege. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, 
leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.